Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What's up, Yoga Revealed podcast community? This is Alec Vishal Rubin, extending warmth and gratitude to you for joining us today. Back in July, I had the opportunity to connect with Rod Stryker while at Wanderlust in Aspen, Colorado. We shared a potent conversation revolving around the nature of his evolution in yoga and revealing tantric yoga. It is always a gift when we have the opportunity to hear from a senior teacher who has spent a tremendous amount of time practicing yoga. He is here to share the gift of yoga with us. Self-realization wasn't a goal, it was an experience that they had. They, they were lit up by teachers before them. Self-realization, meaning understanding who and what lies beyond me. Like I like to say, God begins where I end. So I've got to find a way to move beyond me. Drop into the wisdom of Rod Stryker and Para Yoga on this episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. Namaste, Yoga Revealed Podcast, and thank you so much for tuning in. It is such a blessing to be here with you, illuminating the wisdom of yoga over the last few months. We're so grateful for you, our community. It gives me such honor and it is such a privilege to be here in Aspen, Colorado at Wanderlust, sitting across from Sir Rod Stryker with Para Yoga in Carbondale. Rod, thank you so much for taking time out of the busy schedule that you are teaching every single day and transmitting such a oof, grounded and pure and clear focus of what it is that you embody as yoga. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Rod. Yeah. So for maybe those who don't know who you are or haven't heard of para yoga uh, or tantra yoga that you're offering could you give us um, a little synopsis of how yoga revealed itself to you mm -hmm. and uh, who are you oh well you're gonna have to cut me off at some point because it's <laughs> okay. <get> really long <laughs> um i don't know if you, you maybe want to narrow that question only you know, it starts becoming kind of biographical, and um, it's it's a short and a long story all at once. The short of it is, um, the first time I consciously contacted yoga, I was five, 
and I saw a book of yoga. It was the summer. It was an auspicious summer because I also was the summer I learned to ride a bike. And uh, I was staying with my granduncle, my um, father's mother's brother. And uh, he was as clearly as unspiritual a man as you could possibly imagine. And uh, I, the, only, the few memories I have is they had plastic couches. And I mean, it was a really funky place. But I, I and it was in Philadelphia. It was, it was there in the summer. I pull a book off the bookshelf at one point, and it's a book about yoga poses. I tell the story, but it's, it's really a defining story for me because the moment I, I open this book, I see these postures and something clicks in my five-year-old brain, but I'm perceptive or, or, or self-aware or not or something. What struck me was that this man wasn't just doing something with his body. It was like his whole being was somehow involved in what was going on on those pages and those postures. And I, I, I literally just, I, I resolved in that moment to, to do that. Um, uh, it, was, it was absolutely clear to me that I should do it, I would do it, I would do it. And uh, so that's how it revealed itself to me initially. And I started about uh, 12, uh, what's in it? Uh, What's that? 18 minus plus. So about 13 years later, and I was in college. I forgot about that promise. You know, I mean, it was floating back somewhere in the, my consciousness, but I had no awareness of it. And I uh, was had left college my junior year, and I um, was now working. I was doing double shifts. I was working down in Denver. And one day I came into a employee meeting and someone said, man, I mean, one of the waitresses was a friend and she said, you look tired. You, you, you should try yoga. Now I'm 18, I'm not even 19 yet, you know, so I don't know why I look so tired and what was going on. But um, she said, well, come to my class. She gave me the times. They were all during my work shifts. She said, well, if you can't come, then just pick up a book on yoga, pick up light on yoga. And uh, within a couple of weeks, I don't know exactly how long it took me, but within a couple of weeks, I pick up light on yoga, I read the introduction. And I have this singular experience that I'm, yeah, and his 49, 50 page introduction is mind blowing. It's just so, it's such clarity and um, about, you know, yoga and uh, an amazing overview of yoga. And as I'm reading it, I'm not learning anything new. I'm having this experience as I'm reading and I'm, I'm being reminded. Wow. I'm being reminded of stuff that's already in my bones. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty rich. Mm. I then kind of did this thing. He tells about you know he kind of gives a seven year course. The third pose I did was Parshvil Konasana. He says hold it one to three minutes, or thirty seconds to three minutes. You know, Mr. Iyengar, and I hold it for two minutes or something, and I and I'm on the first side, and I'm already like, wow, the world a world is open to me. And I was athletic prior to that, you know, as a kid and. But I was never more in my body than in those two minutes. And, you know, I'm pouring sweat. And uh, I realized I'd opened a door to something I'd always wanted to know. And I still don't know that if I remember that five-year-old pledge. And then finally, um, uh, I continued to do it. I mean, I instantaneously feel, felt different. And then I continued to do it via the book. And the same... <clears throat> person, the same link to yoga, the same woman said to me, well, you know, sooner or later, it's going to take you too long to get to headstand or shoulder stand. You know, if you can do anything, just do shoulder stand and, uh, and, and, and shoulder stand and plow are the two most important poses. So I, 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 um, again, look in Mr. Anger's book, I have to skip a few years of preparation in order to do it. It's my second or third month doing yoga. And he says, hold a shoulder stand for, uh, five minutes to 30 minutes old plow for two minutes to 30 minutes. So I decided well, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to just hold shoulder stand for 30 minutes and see what happens. I'm going to hold fit plow 15 minutes. And, and, um, yeah, I just, you know, you can imagine if you've ever tried to hold an inversion for any length of time, it's intense. And then I peel out of this pose and I lay into Shavasana and uh, moving out of my body and um, floating over Denver and I'm having this, I'm having, I'm seeing the world. I'm seeing, I'm seeing with a different eye, literally. 
all of these really profound experiences. And I just came to, that was my formula. I did that for six to eight months, half hour, 15 minutes, Shavasana, half hour, 15 minutes, Shavasana. That's the danger of no teacher. My neck probably dealt with the repercussions of that for another 10 years, even though I was pretty young. It wasn't a very good sequence. Uh, but the profundity of it left its mark. And and really, that's how yoga un- began to unfold, really. Mm. I mean, there's many more stories to tell, but that's really where the mark was. That's a beautiful seed that sprouted by your own, well, by divine happening. Yeah, so it for seems. sure. Sure. And uh, who who was some of the first teachers that influenced you to step into uh, study? So the year, you know, you have to kind of figure this, configure it based on the time, put it in the context of the time. It's 1978, 1979. Uh, I grew up in L.A. I was in school in Denver, and that's where I was doing this yoga. And then I decided then to move back to L.A. And within a few days, I called a friend of mine from high school. And he said, hey, I'm going to yoga class tonight. You want to go? And I had still, I'd never been in front of a teacher. I'd been doing yoga that way for, you know, better part of eight or nine months. And uh, so he took me to a Kundalini yoga class. Uh, he had started a few months earlier and we got to Kundalini yoga. And, um, you know, it was the first time I was in front of a teacher. And part of me um, was lit up by having someone in front of me guide me. And, you know, when you're facilitating your own practice, there's a part of you that you can't completely receive it because a part of you is actually engaged in guiding yourself through it. It's just like if even if you're flexible and someone adjusts you in a pose, you're going to go a little further because certain muscles can relax that would otherwise have to engage to, to do the pose. Mm. And same kind of thing. So I had this experience of like stepping out of having to be in charge. And by the way, I wasn't very informed. I was not very you know informed or sophisticated in the kind of yoga I was teaching myself, obviously, two poses <laughs> completely. I mean, I was doing amazing things with my nervous system, but it wasn't really well informed. And uh, um, so, you know, at that point, and, and I often say this, is like it was early in my life and early in my yoga life, so anything made a difference. Mm. You know, the moment you start breathing and moving and coordinating those two things, you're going to, there's going to be a transition. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I started doing Kundalini Yoga and I... Um, and that's where it happened. It happened for, I was doing that for almost two years. I met a girl and this girl ultimately wound up taking me to um, uh, a different class. We kind of made this arrangement, kind of a, I don't know, it was early 80s in LA. I guess that was the, at least if you were sober minded, this was kind of a, a dating plan, which is I'll take you to my class, you take me to yours, and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, and uh, she took me, uh, I don't remember if she ever made it to the Mike Kundalini Yoga class, but she took me to um, a gentleman named Alan Finger. Um, uh, it was in West LA. And I walk in the room and, and he was, um, he, yeah, it was, it, it's it's a funny story. I mean, I, I actually was not very receptive to him. He was very um, lighthearted, which for me was contra, it was like contraindicated for spirituality. You couldn't be simultaneously lighthearted and spiritual. That was the space in my mind because I was a philosophy and psychology major and those two things can't combine. Spirituality is serious business. I mean, I studied the classics and... Um, and I was still under the impression that my mind was going to be the methodology, was going to be the vehicle hmm. to spiritual enfoldment. Hmm. So I didn't, I didn't, you know, I was, again, I was nascent. I mean, I was, I was a child, I was a baby. And, um, but so the, the interesting thing was that I did his class, said I'm never coming back. I was really ready. I was on the verge of really making a big commitment to Kundalini Yoga. Uh, I bought a turban, which was like just, it's miles of, of, of material. I don't know if people know this, but it's like it's like nine yards. I think a turban is something like twenty-seven feet of cloth that you wrap around your head. It's long, and I was going to go do this um, uh, summer retreat in Española, still going on actually Kundalini Yoga intensives in the summer. And I don't know what I, I can remember what that piece of cloth slash turban thing was in my in the closet at the time, and then I just. Two weeks later, I just wound up at this man's class. I wound up back after telling myself I wouldn't go back. Something was going on. And I felt something unique. And I didn't leave. Um, turns out the kind of yoga was different. 
it was more deliberate. It was, it was, Kundalini Yoga has its own uh, kind of take on asana. And this, I found, ultimately created a whole different kind of state of consciousness. Um, Kundalini Yoga is very focused on moving up. Um, and this moves up, this style of yoga, essentially tantric hatha, um, or tantric yoga, which, you you know, tantric yoga technique, practice. Um, not only does it go up, but it integrates. It's more integrative. That's what my experience was. And um, he was extremely knowledgeable. His father was a master yogi. Within a few months, his dad, he, he both he and his father are South African. His father comes back. His father comes. And, uh, you know, I know in one moment, my first breath of seeing this man, mm. that he would, he would, he would be my teacher. That I didn't even really, I wasn't really looking for a spiritual, um, a spiritual presence to follow, so to speak, or to use as a role model. And, and he, he comes and he's this presence and, um, uh, he leads meditation practices and he lectures and he combines, he's quoting William Blake and he's quoting the Vedas and he's speaking about quantum physics and Einstein and I've just, it was like the most alive I've ever seen a human being. And he laughed and he, <laughs> and he loved his grandkids and his, <laughs> he was, he was a kind of this living, vibrant fire of a poet, spiritual master, you know, and at the same time, he was a t intense authority, authority figure. Um, and uh, so between the two of them, Alan was a great, uh, I wouldn't say buffer, but a way to kind of meld what what Manny was teaching, the intensity of it, with something a little bit more like grounded and helping me to kind of integrate the two. That's where I spent the next 17 years of my development and teaching. And within a few months, I met with Alan. He gave me a personal practice and specifically meditation pranayama practice and everything took off from there in essence mm. you know and the first day i sat down to meditate um i was aware of cars and stuff going on in the background and i just had this and it's city life was going on and i'm i'm just aware of the power of me interrupting the flow of life and stepping into this other world hmm. and and honoring the honoring the, really honoring this the seeker in me the, the 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 thing in me that was maybe for lifetimes searching for something that the world would not provide and i step into meditation the cars are going and this thing i'm meditating on i don't know if you know los angeles but it's um, <laughs> uh La, uh, uh, what am I on? Uh, Robertson Boulevard. Excuse me, Doheny, actually. It's, they're all the same, more or less busy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, within, within minutes of sitting, doing my own personal practice, given to me by a teacher of authority, of a lineage, I realize that this is a gift unlike any other that I've received. Mm. So I get on, I'm, I get on fire and I, uh, I now meditate every day for the next three months and four months and certain, I just start feeling different, I'm more light. Some of the creativity that probably got stuck in me 15 years earlier as a young man, some of my self-confidence, lightness, aspiration, motivation, and something stirs in me that says, hey, I'd like to teach this. I've been doing yoga now for almost three years like to start teaching and not not to make a living hey it's 1979 1980 you don't make a living teaching yoga i want to just make that really clear you don't make a living teaching yoga in 1980 there were like five yoga studios in los angeles from la cienega to the beach which is 14 15 miles imagine that five yoga studios in west la so there was nothing so it was about it was about studying with alan it was about studying with manny it was about finding a voice that in which I was actually embodying the things they were teaching me, where I could express them. It wasn't about making a living. And, um, you know, I approached Alan after about a few months and uh, now I'm meditating, this light has been lit. And uh, I say, you know, I think I want to teach. And he says, uh, I've been waiting for you. 
my father and I saw you and, and realized you'd be the first American to teach what we teach. So it begins. Mm. Wow. So it seems like really those first two years with Kundalini, you really allowed a, this higher focus to seep in. And then when you started to focus on what sounds like more asana practice, you integrated with remembrance of the Kundalini into the asana. And you now have been integrating that through uh, uh, Tantra and Kundalini in your, 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 your offering of the asana. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. I mean, the one piece missing is that Alan and Manny stress meditation. So now I've got the Kundalini, which is this, you're right, this very direct awakening, uh, a, a very purposeful orientation to transforming perception, to moving energy, so that we really um, uh, step out of this normative view of ourselves, our bodies, the world, and all that. That's definitely a huge piece that to, today continues to inform me at some level. Now, mm. again, that was... 35, 37 years ago, I'm practicing that, you know, 36, 37 years ago. But, um, but it was, you're right. Then we step into asana and we step into bandha and we step into pranayama in a more <clears throat> systematic way, I would argue. And, and combined with meditation. I mean, medita Manny was giving me practices in meditation that I would have to do. It would take me an hour and a half to get through the practice. But you're right. You're absolutely. You're on it. You, you know, it's it's that interface of those two um, that really informed me. There was one or two major transitions that happened later, but you captured the essence of of what I think I convey as a teacher and what I certainly what I what I um, pursue as a practitioner. You know what I found is that when you're teaching, um, you really bring so much attention to the inner form of of the asana. And one thing that you said, I loved you to comment on, you said, just because you're flexible, if you are, does not mean that you are tooping, tapping into the nadis or your channels. Right, right. Wow. When you said that, that, can you speak to that? Illuminate that a little more? Well, you know, um, it's not very far before you step into yoga study that you learn about the koshas. And that's a really helpful model for, for practitioners. So the koshas are the sheets. And essentially, physical sheath, we all know what that is. Uh, it's our body. It's our, you know, it's our food body. It's what we need. We need food. One day, this body will become food. Um, we have the energy body, the pranic body, which is on the material level breath, but then there's the whole you know, chakra system, meridian system, all of this. Then there's the mental body. Then there's the pure in in intellect, which one way I like to think of it is really it's the body of the inner teacher. Pure mm. will, pure intuition. Mm. And then finally is um, this Anandamaya, this body of bliss, which on the one hand sounds really terrific, but it's also the kind of unconscious, the deep, deep, deep unconsciousness. So having said that, um, in essence, uh, when we're working with yoga, we can really be on the surface. We can stay on, the, on, the, on this first kosha. And we can become really masterful of it. By the way, that's, you know, when you see experts, we're not really necessarily seeing their subtle body unless you know what to look for. Mm. Um, it, you can see great physical perfection, but you may not know to what extent their subtle body is alive, how vibrant it is. And really what I would argue is there are two schools of yoga. One is the classic yoga school, which says that basically our, our experience of life, um, I'm starting to get excited here. Our experience of life, I noticed I was talking faster, so I'm getting excited. <laughs> our experience of life is determined by essentially our mental acuity, the quality of our perception. The tantric school of yoga says the quality of our life is primarily influenced by the quality of our prana. And so yoga is going to look at chitta, chitta vritti narodaha, and, and tantra is going to look at prana. And so what I and then what we'd argue is if you notice it potentially doesn't spend a lot of time with asana, doesn't say anything about asana other than do it. And he tells you what will happen if you do it well, but he doesn't really tell you how to do it, doesn't ever munch your bundas. Tantra goes into it in such great detail. And the tantric orientation to the use of asana was let's use asana to shape energy. Mm -hmm. rather than think of the breath, of using the breath to perfect poses, what if we thought of the 
using poses to perfect the breath. Because the breath is much more linked and much more influential in the quality of our experience than the body is. You can be tight, stiff, weak, and be a really balanced, happy, ecstatic, humble, spiritual soul. I meet them all over the Midwest. When I travel in the Midwest, I meet all these women, you know, or people that are in their 50s and they're not in great shape. They come to my classes and man, they're just open, joyous, mm. humble, free. Mm. Now, it's a whole other story. I get to the coasts where the hard bodies, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten yoga classes a week. And it's like, chronically, they can be inert. It can be actually like dead wood. There's nothing animated at all. So it's not much about the body. You know, that's a weird mythology we've gotten. I'd like to ask the question, when did yoga become about a small bikini in a stretched out body on the beach? Mm. You know, I get the sensuality. I get the beauty of it. Mm. But just so we're really clear, that does not make a yogi. So yogi is either one who's yoked to their prana or yoked to their mind, or even better, have their mind and their prana yoked. Mm. Um, so using asana as a method to change the way you breathe, using asana as a method to, method to access bandhas, to change your energetic landscape, that not only then prepares you to move out in the world in a, in a way in which you're more harmonious, more better prepared, more open, more mm -hmm. wondrous, more expansive and creative, it's the basis for moving into the depth of meditation. Mm. Beautiful. So to kind of focus on the word Tantra, you've said this word Tantra quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and I left in class, you were like, I think you guys might have signed up for this class because uh, you might thought we were going to take all our clothes off and right. get a giant cuddle puddle going on. And that's just, you know, not yeah, the case. For sure. <laughs> I didn't use the word cuddle puddle, but I, 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 added that in. I may in the future. I <laughs> yes. may in the future. Could you illuminate again? I love the word because it's just, that's what our podcast is. We want to illuminate the yoga. Okay. Can you share with us what is Tantra yeah. in your lineage and how is Tantra showing up in our daily life? And how is Bandha incorporated to Tantra? Well, this is a big subject. Let's, so, let's see if I can be concise and, and, uh, and give it still some, uh, some life, some understanding. So Tantra is a word... Um, the basic meaning of it is tan to expand or tan to stretch, tra beyond all limitations. And the other meaning of the word tra means um, to protect. Hmm. So it's in essence, we could say what it means is to do that which expands your limitations or expands you beyond your limitations, but does it in such a way where you're protected or you're guided. Tantra also means technique. Tantra also means body of knowledge. And Tantra also means to have your heart touched. And really, that's the culmination of it. In a way, if we combine all that, we get this idea. It's a body of knowledge. It's a body of methodologies, whereby when we do them, there's a spontaneous movement out of our limitations to a more expanded, more limitless place. And uh, the it's... There's a great argument among scholars and non-academics around the idea of when Tantra, when did Tantra begin? From a non-academic view, it began the first time human beings tried to expand their perception. My first teacher liked to say that the first time people found that if they just laughed continuously for 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, it changes your consciousness. <laughs> and it's true, it does, you know, it releases endorphins, just the act of laughing. So already they could find, and then clearly there was experiments with um, uh, uh, sound and chanting and uh, drumming and rhythm and dance. And the Sufis embody their tantra through movement and spinning and they're not just spinning their body, they're spinning their chakra system. And, and so Tantra becomes this amazing body of knowledge that prior be, before the, uh, its, its 
kind of peak period, which is somewhere between the 9th century and the 12th century, 13th century, um, it's called, not Tantra, it's called Agama. Agama. And Agama and Nigama are the two basic foundations of Veda. And Agama then is this, this whole collection of techniques that were about empowering um, everyday people. Veda goes into a different, slightly different direction where the techniques, you know, if you're not a Brahmin, in fact, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. You know, it's true. I mean, and God forbid you were a woman. So what happens is the teachings then start to becoming rarefied for this very select priestly class. And the common man has to go to the priests who are hopefully more enlightened and kind of get their blessings. And that's their yoga practice. Or they witness a ritual. And that's their practice. The practice was then be, kind of got usurped and it gets over to the... What the Agamas did is they, one, it was a maternalistic as opposed to paternalistic society where they thought women and the feminine energy was the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. And they also educated in the Agama tradition, it was also about bringing these techniques to everyday people, elevating the life of every man and woman and using these methodologies so that they had practical applications to their life. It wasn't reserved for some special class of people. Tantra rises then in the ninth century, and many people say it was in response to this weird orthodoxy that happened. It was the kind of dark ages of Veda. And these guys were just brilliant uh, at um, specifying the inner landscape of consciousness. The wisdom of the chakras is Tantra. The wisdom of the fire ceremony, external ceremony, the wisdom of asana is fully flushed out in Tantra. The, the tradition called the Nathists, N-A-T-H. Nath means Lord. So when you read the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, for example, there's this first salutation to Adinatha, right? First it's Shiva, and Shiva teaches, teaches it to his wife, teaches the yoga, and then she teaches it to Natha, to this first, Adi means first, Natha. And the, and the Nathas were these tantrics who looked at the body as an altar. Not going to t- external temples, but they saw that the temple was inside of us. And where we should really offer worship, where God was, was inside of us. And so if you start thinking about that, and they also expounded also, and they said, there's no energy in the universe that's not in our body. Hmm. There's no energy in our body that's not in the universe. And they go further and they say there are these, what they call tirthas. Tirthas are crossing points of energies. Tirthas are where, in essence, just like when you walk into a cathedral, there's, me- there's lots of decoration, lots to see, but there are tirtha points. There's actual points of where you do your worship, where, where really this coalescence of forces meet. A sense of awe? A sense of, wor- of actual energy, uh, spiritual concentrations of energy. So a Tirtha is a crossing point where lines of potentiality converge. So your chakras are Tirthas, but there's also other Tirthas within the body. And they start laying out these maps. And then they start this science. They provide from that, you can see how organic it is that asana comes out of that. Asana now is a way to break down the obstacles that allow consciousness to enter into these Tirthas where you then can do worship, where you actually meet God within. So asana becomes a seamless piece of a multidimensional practice in which bandha, mudra, asana, pranayama all converge. Patanjali doesn't give us any of this. It's expounded upon in tantric texts, some of which again rise to the fore in this, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. And, uh, That's Tantra. Now, it's true that there are forms of Tantra that don't include asana or yoga. Well, they'll use more external tools. But the paths of Tantra, and there are primarily three different schools. The external, the school that goes toward external practices. And then those they use, they're almost like formulas, using formulas of fire or worship or different rituals that have effects on the external environment. And I've seen, I've seen these things happen, where yogis do all sorts of things to bring peace to an environment, 
I, a few years ago, my teacher, who we haven't talked about, my current teacher, did a ritual around the bees, healing the bee, you know, the mm-hmm. bee, the bee die off and external practice of Tantra to actually create within like a five mile radius, a recolonization of the, of these wild bees. So there's external practices, there's internal practices, which is the yogic approach. And then there are some schools that combine some external and some internal, mm-hmm. which is where I come from. It's primarily yogic and internal. And then orthodox and unorthodox, left hand and right hand. So that's Tantra. And the main thing that we get, you know, and I, we could take up the whole podcast with that. Completely. <laughs> but um, one, and, and you asked the question in the following, it, it, that I think invites me to answer it in the following way, which is this exploration of asana that happened in the West and this popularization of it is really fundamentally tantric. Do you know, look at it this way. When we go to yoga class, when you started yoga, like no one asked you if you, you know, how up to date you were with your yamas and niyamas, right? right? No. No, thank God. You fill out that form in the beginning of the <laughs> practice and you don't, no one says, have you lied in the last few years? Have you cheated anybody? Have you lusted for anything? Have you all, you know, um, so the point is that we take people in Provided they'll respect the room, respect the space. And there's this implicit understanding between teacher and the taught that if you do this, you're going to become better. Mm. Something's going to shift in you. You're going to expand. And that's most of our experience. We do it. We become better. We become a little nicer to ourselves. As I started to experience in my thing, that I, my, when I started meditating, something happens. I get more creative. I get more self-confident. Mm. I get more spacious. I get more self-accepting. Um, that's Tantra, because what's happening is you are doing a practice that's moving you beyond your limitations. We're not confining you to yamas niyamas. Many yoga classes don't even have meditation in them. And so what's happening is I'm doing asana, which is changing my energy field. And as a result of that, when I leave, something has shifted in me. And it's that phenomenon that is by its nature Tantra. Hmm. And then, but what I would then say is you go further, and that's been my, in a way, my privilege and my journey is to learn with two great masters about the actual science behind it. And that there's a, just such a wealth of knowledge, you know. In short, who are these two great masters? Please? Well, I, I mentioned Manny and uh, Manny Finger, Kavi Yogi Raj. And uh, he was my teacher for 17 years. And then in 1980, uh, in 1998, I meet Pandit Rajmani Tuganayan, who's spiritual head of the Himalayan Institute. And I'm really now formally taken into this lineage of Sri Vidya. And uh, Panditji was, was a student. His master was a, uh, a great yogi named uh, Swami Rama. His, his master was a, 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 a master. I mean, they're both masters being comparable mystery and power his name was bengali baba and their direct lineage to uh, linkage to shankacharya who was the initiator uh, adi shankara who was the, in the eighth century was so you can follow this lineage directly back to them and it's really through that grace manny gave me incomparable gifts and lit me on fire he, he was mm. one who threw the spark mm. but they're the ones who nurtured it and showed me how to keep it bright mm. you know and so Let's see, what is your value and the importance of the student-teacher relationship? And how do you keep that alive now in space of teacher? So this may be my favorite subject and also the subject that I find, uh, you know, um, important to talk about when there's an opportunity to do so. And given the depth of this conversation, this is a great opportunity. So I don't know what it is. You know, part of it is, look... This thing of five years old, I see yoga, and then it triggers, and then I decide to, yeah, I'll just start doing half hour shoulder stands, you know, on my own. There's something, we all have our own, we all bring something to yoga, right? Well, one thing I brought for sure was always the fundamental understanding that I needed a teacher. I just knew it. I, yeah, I practiced on my own initially, but within a short period of time, I realized, man, somebody knows more than me 
they're tapped into something. They've evolved further than I have. They have access to methodologies I don't know about yet or I don't understand fully. I need a teacher. I don't know if that's just a past life. In fact, I'm sure it's a past life thing. I just know this value. It's in my cells. And I never had a hard time with it. I just never did. So when I met Manny and Alan, that was like, I get it. You're going to help me. I see the, the, the part of me that I want to become more like. I see the wisdom. I see the living knowledge. I see the technology. I see all of that. So it's not just you're a wealth of knowledge. You're also like a better person than I am. Let me figure out how to be like you. Let me see what you do. And then, um, so that's 17 years. And then uh, Manny's reaching toward the end of his life. And I just felt a calling. So I go out. I reach out to Pandaji. I, I go meet Pandit Rajmani Tuganayat. And, I, I, you know, the thing is that he has more, had more knowledge than these guys did. My first teachers did. And he's more embodied. The fact is, it's always been easy for me to get it. And I know that, listen, you know, Alec, if you had... If you put a stack of notebooks of all the stuff they had taught me, I'm talking about hard material, right? It would be, I don't want to say a library, but it would be a big shelf. It'd be a big shelf. I mean, you know, Par Yoga's manual is hundreds of pages. And so, you know, it's a lot. But, you know, without their transmission, I'm nowhere. I don't know if I'm in the first. I don't know if I'm past the second chapter. Um. It's their presence. It's their mastery that then comes through their words and their presence that is the vital piece. Now, I'm blessed because both of these guys were masters. Both of them were living masters in the sense that self-realization wasn't a goal. It was an experience that they'd had. They, they were lit up by teachers before them. Self-realization, meaning understanding who and what lies beyond me. Like I like to say, God begins where I end. So I've got to find a way to move beyond me. And, you know, having a living teacher is, as I've said, an, an, an access point to knowledge, an access point to technology, an, aspect, an access point to Ideally, behavior, you know, they need to be more joyous than you. They need <laughs> to have greater integrity than you. They need to have uh, more humility than you. If you don't see those things, more joy, more integrity, less fear, if you don't see those things, then you really, you, you need to find a different, go learn from that person. But don't call them your teacher. Hmm. Uh, you know, teacher holds a special place for me in my heart. So having been a student of master teachers for this many decades, um, to me, it is the missing piece of American yoga. And partially what it is, is that they're not enough students, although I'm privileged. I have a lot of students who, in fact, are climbing this ladder and of, of self-development, self-evolution and growth and mastery of methodology and those things. And I see them passing it on, and it's great. But as I look at the broader landscape, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting thing to watch because I really sense that um, uh, there's a lot of folks who are fumbling in the dark, and I'm talking about the teachers even, and they don't necessarily have a very rich personal practice, and they don't necessarily have a a personal practice that's really helping them evolve per se, you know. And that sounds rather judgmental, and and, and it's okay. I'm, I'm all right. I'm comfortable with that. You and I have a very frank conversation. But I think more to the point, even rather than me judging how far along they are or not along, what I see that is troubling is a lack of passionate commitment to experiencing the end game of yoga. And there is an end game. There really is an end game. I, I see it. I see, I see the approach of that end game. I've had enough experiences to know that it's not, it's, I don't want to say it's elusive anymore. And it's, and there is an end game. Buddha himself sat under the tree until he reached the end game. He said, I'm not moving. 
till I reach the end game. So this idea there's no goal, yeah, you can't hold a goal in your mind and get there. But there is an end game where I end, God begins. And so that um, what I, what's striking to me and in a way sad is there are a lot of great, wonderful teachers. And now maybe we use the word instructor instead of teacher that we're passing on information. A lot of it is, um, gosh, what I call MSU, uh, may make stuff up. You know, it's make stuff up. And sometimes that middle word, it begins with S. I use a different, a different, use a different word to describe it. Um, it's not coming from experience. It's not time tested. It's not coming down through a lineage. And you know, most of these people are way too busy. Most of us are too busy in this age. If you realize the states of a consciousness these masters achieved and prior to, who channel these teachings, who leave this legacy of these texts, they had much more time mm. and much more sensitivity. They didn't have to distract themselves on, so, on social media. And they really processed it. And they saw the things that we then have heard about, read about. My point is, if you start from scratch and you don't start from being close to a masterful teacher, how far can you get? Hmm. Um, so it's a big deal. I, and you know, as Americans, we're really independent or wildly codependent. We don't really want to be taught, you know, and it's challenging in this day and age. Listen, there's a handful of my peers. Um, you've interviewed some of them. And none of us got into yoga as a profession. It was just not even, it was not even, they weren't, the two words couldn't even be related. You know, it was a passion. And, you know, there was no such thing as social media. And there was the great gift of not becoming famous before you had actually had layers and layers of experience. Uh, your, your reservoir was so full of what you were able to share. Now you graduate from a 200-hour training, and if you're, I, I hate to say it, but if you're cute and you're personable and you like being in front of people, you can learn how to teach a vinyasa class in a few months. And that's what all most Americans' expectation is. I moved, I sweat. That's yoga, right? That's the stretchy bikini on the beach mentality. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is now yoga, yoga, there's an end game to yoga. And uh, it's one of touching and tasting something that is so extraordinary mm. as to be undefinable, really. And... If you are being led by someone who hasn't gotten there, they can't take you there. They can't take you where you haven't been. So um, the teacher-student relationship is precious. Hmm. It's not only precious ultimately from, as the student because it's going to benefit me. It's precious because it's what's going to sustain an authentic resource for true seekers. That there is something authentic that you and I can draw from. You know, about 15 years ago, I, I thought to myself as I was kind of coming to certain clarity about who I was as a teacher and what I had to contribute. And I, um, I kind of looked around because, you know, it was, when I, it was after I had started traveling, teaching the country, teaching around the country and internationally a bit, I realized that what Manny and Panaji had given me was unique. Hmm. But not everyone knew what I was talking about. And I was opening eyes, you know. That's why it's fun to come to Wonderlust, where we are here. Because there are a lot of people who have been working hard at Asana. And then suddenly you give them another dimension. And they leave the room going, oh, wow. That's a big iceberg. Wow, I can do that and actually feel something more. Mm. It doesn't have to be so cloaked in mysticism. It's like, use your breath, use your body. I'll give you a few things to concentrate on. Sorry, I won't be playing James Brown really loud. And let me show you to connect. Let's connect with something. Let's shape it. Let's start to create shape to this prana that's keeping you alive. And they go, wow. Um, but so I have this experience traveling... I don't know when it was, you know, it gets consolidated, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And I realized, wait, you know what Manny gave me was unique. 
my experience of Kundalini Yoga combined with Manny gave me, combined with uh, Panaji and my studies of Krishmacharya's wisdom. And, um, and I said, well, you know what? Here's the thing. This would be a really worthwhile goal is that my children's children, because I really think, uh, let me just say one more thing and I'll tell you what the vision was. Mm. Um, I realized that there weren't a lot of people doing it. It wasn't like, the, I was like a, kind of a, a wolf howling at the moon kind of thing. I felt very alone. And then I realized, well, if anyone was really interested in this stuff, they're gonna have to find me, which is not gonna be easy. Manny wasn't teaching anymore. Panaji doesn't teach asana. So I thought to myself, you know what a worthwhile goal is that I think that, it's that when my kids have kids, their kids won't have only one or two resources. Hmm. In the United States, that it'll actually be accessible. And that this type of yoga, tantra, where really we can tap in to the most vital elements of who we are to incite and to activate positivity, strength, healing, spiritual experience, vibrancy, practic you know, being pragmatic, being worldly, being a human being, being humble, all of these things that Tantra Yoga did for me, that it will be widely accessible. And that's what I set out to do. So uh, really, you know, I stopped teaching a lot of different things and just concentrated on training people who wanted to learn what I had to train mm. and teach. Wow. So a lot of our listeners have been staying with this podcast for weeks, weeks, and really soaking it up, which is such an honor to, to be able to transmit what you're sharing. And I'm blessed to know some of our listeners as endearing friends in my life. A lot of these people, I believe, are yoga teachers. Mm. So... We're, we're getting to a conclusion soon. And as a huge takeaway, what would be a tip and a piece of guidance from you to teachers who are looking to continue to find their teacher? Right. How, how can we keep that thread of yoga alive mm -hmm. for our listeners? Is it a matter of Shraddha, faith? And just like knowing that it's coming if it's not there? Or is there a sense of action? This is a question that I've asked a lot of your peers and the teachers that are on the podcast. For years, I just, I, I had my own experience, but, you know. You asked them the same question. Similar. How do you find your teacher? So let's first, okay, so I'm happy to answer it. Let's try this. First of all, first of all, without this, you can't go anywhere. First of all, just understand that you're always learning. Always be a student. I'm a student, man. I've been at this 40 years. I'm a student. The more you learn, the more you learn that you have more to learn. Never stop learning. Never be content with what you know. That's number one. And if you can't deal with that one, if you can't kind of embrace that idea, then really the conversation is mute. You know, are you going to be a professional teacher or are you going to be a student who teaches? Mm. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. Because then if you're a teacher, you're more of an actor. You're acting the part. We don't have an authentic connection to ourselves. Our practice is minimal. You don't, anyway. Um, so number one is that. Number two is understand that you can learn a lot from a lot of people who aren't your teacher. There's a lot of, there's the worlds and worlds and worlds. There's worlds within worlds within yoga, which are fulfilling of themselves. So alignment is a world within a world, within a world. And it can go on and on and on and on. But there are many people who can teach you alignment who will not be your teacher, who are not, who are not of teacher metal. You know, they just don't have that. They don't have that gravitas. Hmm. You know, but they're fine alignment teachers. Go for it. Learn alignment. Learn it. Learn as much as you can. In essence, you know, there's something called para, para jnana and apara jnana. Para means highest, so apara means not the highest. Jnana means knowledge. So apara jnana is the knowledge that helps you work, that helps you work better in the world. 
But paragyana, the higher knowledge, only a few people can give that to you. So number two then is I say, number three then, apara and para, yeah. And you go, a lot of people can teach me apara jnana. I can huh. learn technology. I can learn alignment. I can learn hands-on adjustment. I can learn even, you know, basics of pranayama and stuff like that. I can learn all that. And there's some very skilled, very experienced, great teachers and, or slash instructors who can pass on apara jnana. Paragyana, the higher knowledge. You know, Alec, um, you know, I've been at this a long time and and I'm in a place now, I'm fifty-eight. I don't have to I don't have to bullshit anymore. And I don't have to hide the truth. And the truth is, there are not ten teachers in this country that are worth being called teacher. Ten. And I don't know, I won't go into their names, but I will say, and I'm not even talking about necessarily asana teachers. You don't need necessarily an awesome teacher to be your teacher. Clearly, the Dalai Lama could be anyone's teacher if that was your path, right? So that's one. So now you've got nine. The idea is that you need a vibrant spiritual connection to some authority, some luminous presence, whether and ideally living, because you need to see them humble. You need to see them in action. You need to see their students. Are they kind of something I aspire to be? Um, and yeah, of course have faith, but understand this, that we've translated this statement that's often talked about as guru incorrectly. So the statement goes, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that's actually not a good translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't quote the Sanskrit, but the way it actually transla- translates is when the teacher is prepared, excuse me, when the student is prepared, the teacher appears. You can be ready, but not prepared. <laughs> and so the point is, just prepare. Your work is to be prepared. So the best advice I can give is make sure you are applying what you currently understand. Apply what you currently understand about yoga. Do it. Don't let it be a theory. Don't let it hide. Don't let it kind of be compartmentalized into your under, into your not into your mind. Live it. Breathe it. Most importantly, practice it. That will gradually have the effect of increasing your level of preparation. And then when you're prepared, it's a law of, the, it's a law of nature. The teacher will be there mm. when you're prepared, not when you're ready. So how do you get prepared? Do what you know. Practice what you know. And by all means, you know, I, I encourage you to have some personal practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the universe is dying, is living, I should say, to support you in your advancement on the path of yoga. Mm. There are many accomplishments in life, but according to the tradition, none is more noble than the passing of knowledge. And so the universe is is actually just waiting for people to step in to that capacity to share the light of knowledge. This is what she's made for. This is what she wants. Um, so just trust. Yeah, trust. You use the word mm. trust, shraddha, faith. Mm. It's not blind faith, though. Yeah. Mm. Last question. Sure. In uh, the two classes that I was able to attend with you, you had a high amount of focus on power. Mm-hmm. And so as a leaving golden leaving a golden nugget for our listeners, what is one of the greatest ways that we can step into our physical power, mm-hmm. our spiritual power, and how can we embrace that stepping into when we're at our weakest? Last part again, give me that last part, part two. How do we embody being in our power yeah when we feel we're at the bottom of our self-confidence of our self-talk whatever it is we just feel Mm. low we feel Mm. weak right yeah i think life is beautiful Mm -hmm. i feel so blessed that i get to live so much beauty i also feel a lot of shadow in my life and i think that's beautiful yeah and there are times where i forget my own power right so 
All right. How much time do we have? I'll do it quick. I'll do a short <laughs> version. So really, the cultivation of power is really a twofold process. And I kind of laid it out earlier when I talked about yoga versus tantra. Yoga is the cultivation of knowledge. And knowledge as big S, knowledge, contact with your soul, contact with that part of you that you, know, you only find in a still mind. But it's also a, a process called vichara of seeing the shadow and understanding the roots of the shadow. So number one, there's a contemplative side to becoming more powerful. And that is to not be um, diminished by your shadow. And the only way you, you, you break down that pattern of diminishment from the shadow is look into it. My first, my Panaji said this, and it was the first weekend I studied with him. And, he, and I went, oh, maybe I do need to be here. Maybe he is my next teacher. He said this, you'll learn more about yourself by looking into your darkness than you will by connecting to your light. Too many yoga teachers and followers of the tradition or whatever this is, they look at their light and they think it's going to cure everything. So imagine if you dismantle the causes of your envy, your jealousy, your fear, your anxiety, your insecurity the causes of the actions that you regret having done, the roots of them. And fundamentally, yoga teaches us they're desire-based. Where are they coming from? Past experiences. So I'll just leave it there and say, you do this contemplative piece. Don't run from the shadow. Look at it and understand the root desires that entrap you in this inner dialogue or in these actions that you then later regret. So if you want more power, you have to collect yourself and not be your energy and your natural energy and reserves and power be diffused by this bifurcation. Like you're just splitting yourself into all these pieces that are unresolved. So we have to seek resolution. And this is actually a vital piece of yogic knowledge and yogic, the yogic process. Don't run. Dive into it. Hmm. Part two, yeah, part two is technical. It's from an asana bandha thing, you know, and it's from the tantra we're talking about. Look, very simply, the navel center. Navel center, navel center, navel center. That's what I was taught. That's what I do when I'm feeling sluggish or down or a little stagnant or I got some self-doubt creeping in. I know I need to fire up the navel center. Uddiyana bandha, forward folds, pausing after exhale. These are methodologies that we actually work with and use. And if you are a Hatha practitioner, you, you've, got to, you've got to tap into that piece. What I just shared about working with navel center energy. And you know, now there's all this science about the second brain in the navel center and that we, be, we produce uh, uh, neurotransmitters in the navel center. And there are all of these things to validate what they thought, but it's basically your navel center uh, last thing I'll say about it is, you know, the navel chakra is called uh, Manipura. And Manipura, Mani means gem, Pura means city. So it's like the city of gems. But the Mani is a special kind of gem. So the gem that you and I are accustomed to are like diamonds, which take light from an outside source. And all they're doing is refracting it. That light, light is bouncing. They bounce the light. That, But if I turn off a light, the diamond doesn't shine. Mm -hmm. A money is a self-luminous gem, a gem that lights its own, the gem that is its own light source. And this idea of the gems that are at your navel center are your light source. They imbue you with confidence, they imbue, and they show you the path ahead. They empower you. So, um, you know, Buddha had it all solved. <laughs> he didn't need any help from Hatha Yoga. Mm -hmm. And he talked about the mind. So number one, you want more power? Understand your mind. The yoga tradition offers us techniques that are not so ephemeral. Like, how do I work on my mind? They give us bandhas, mudras, the breath, uh, asana. So use them, but concentrate on the navel center. And, and uh, if you combine those two things, then you can be on top of your world. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you. Ron. Thank you, Rod. It's an absolute pleasure and absolute blessing to be here at Wanderlust with you and to share an hour of conversation to share with many individuals. Well, thank you for thank you for your investment and your inspiration to do this. And uh, I know you you are touching souls and uh, may it, may our work together light some lights and inspire some souls. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you all so much for sharing your time and energy by listening to the Yoga Revealed podcast. If you love listening to Yoga Revealed, you can let us know by leaving us a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. If you want to spend time studying with Rod, you can visit his website at Parayoga. Also, Rod Stryker will be at Hanuman Yoga Festival 2017 in Boulder, Colorado, June 15th to 18th. Elevate your festival experience with the new Peak Experience Package, which offers you a richer and more intimate experience than the three-day pass, filled with amenities and comforts so you can dive deep into a high-level experience, connect with your favorite teachers in small settings, enjoy master classes, fuel your body with delicious meals, and raise your vibration with VIP-style access for the ultimate yoga weekend. Learn more about this ultimate pass at www.hanumanfestival.com slash peak-experience. Yoga Revealed will be there, and we're so excited to highlight the festival and connect with you. Until next time, my friends, namaste and love life. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.